Today on Ag News Daily. Um, at Midwestern shows, you know, I visited with John Deere and Case IH, but there are also um, European companies, Russian companies there that um, may or may not have their products available in the U.S. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Coming to you live from Kansas City. Well, maybe not live exactly, but coming to you from Kansas City today at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters Convention. My name is Delaney Howell, joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. So bring us up to speed. You are down at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters annual meeting. First year in several. I have not been able to make it down there. Fill us in. What have you learned so far? Who have you been able to interact with? What is the groundbreaking news coming from the world of farm broadcasters? I'm not sure there's any breaking news that's happening down here, but there's definitely... I mean, I, I just love this time because... This may be the only time of year I get to see some of the other fellow farm broadcasters from all across the U.S. And there are just a lot of great people to talk to, a lot of great folks to interact with. And that's my favorite part is the networking side of things. Ah, good. Networking. Building your escape plan. Yes, building my escape plan. Wonderful. Wonderful for you. Well, that's mm-hmm. exciting. And... Um... But we do have news going on in the world of agriculture. The world continues to spin, Delaney. Yes, even though I'm here, the world continues to spin, Mike. Indeed. We had a report out from JBS. I thought this was interesting. They were uh, they issued the reports down there in Sao Paulo, which is, of course, their headquarters, being as they are uh, JBS South America. Um, they came out and they said that the rise of beef consumption in China has been, quote, impressive. They say the, the company said that beef consumption in China is going to remain strong after an outbreak of African swine fever. And we've talked about this repeatedly on the podcast. The price of pork has climbed so much that Chinese consumers are now looking at other proteins. Notably, JBS mentions beef. But Delaney, perhaps you've seen the other major headline to come out of China today. Well, absolutely. It seems that China is officially lifting its ban on U.S. poultry. It's been in effect here for about four years, but this will open the way for a ton of U.S. poultry to make its way to the Chinese consumer. Yes. So Secretary Purdue and Robert Lighthizer made this announcement earlier today. They said that they expect to see a billion dollars of poultry exports. And um, Lighthizer said, quote, China is an important export market for America's poultry farmers, and we estimate they will now be able to export more than $1 billion worth of poultry and poultry products each year to China. The exciting thing is that they're not just looking at poultry. They're also looking at eggs. Um, they, according to Jim Sumner, who is the president of USA Poultry and Egg Export Council, um, he said that the Chinese will likely buy all types of U.S. chicken, turkey, and duck to try and offset their shortage of pork. So both beef and chicken are seeing some moves to the upside here in uh, in Chinese consumption. Yes. I thought you were going to say they're an upside in the markets, and I was going to say, Mike, I don't think that chickens are a traded commodity. They are not. And in fact, we were talking here at the office, this move to open poultry export sales to China is probably going to be slightly bearish to the pork market, to the lean hog market, because, um, you know, in theory, if they're buying more poultry, their demand for U.S. pork could drop somewhat. Who knows the amount? They they do Mm -hmm. prefer pork over poultry, but we shall see. We shall see. Well, since we were talking about, you're talking about a report there, we've got another report that came out 
done by the Tariffs Hurt the Heartland, which is, of course, a nationwide campaign addressing and looking at the tariffs that have been in effect here with the U.S.-China trade war in particular. And they released some new data showing retaliatory tariffs and what those cost to farmers, businesses, and consumers in particularly two Midwestern states, which are Kansas and Missouri. And they said in those two states alone, they have seen a combined import tax total of $677 million dollars And businesses have paid an extra $454 million in import taxes on products that have been subject to tariffs, while exports have faced an additional $260 million in new retaliatory tariffs. Mm. These are just huge numbers. I thought that was crazy. And that's just in two states alone. Right, right. You multiply that across the Corn Belt, across the Southeast, across California, where a lot of those high-value crops are produced that China has taken aim at, and those numbers get catastrophically huge very, very yes. quickly. Yes, yes, they do. Yes, I think listeners on the podcast are aware of my disdain for this tariff policy, so I, I won't think go they, into detail. Let's, good, good idea, good choice. Thank you for moving yeah. along. Right, it's terrible. Not, not the way to fight and win a trade war. Right, we'll just leave it at that. Taxing Americans more is... Yeah, anyhow. But we do have news out of Brazil. So since 2008, there has been a commitment, sort of a pact, between the country's grain traders that they will not buy soybeans produced from land cleared in the Amazon rainforest. This is known as the soy moratorium, and it has been, um, I guess, pretty well adhered to. And it's how the the group, um, the, the grain traders, say that this is how they can – he called it the, the only tool at traders' disposal to monitor the use of deforested areas in the Amazon. This is interesting because Brazil's agriculture minister, Teresa Cristina Diaz, has come out and she has criticized this pact, and she says it's absurd. And we have other ways to show whether or not soy is being produced in the Amazon. So there's a push to get rid of this soy moratorium, though we'll have to see if it actually gains any traction. Abiov. Abiove, I'm not sure how you speak hmm, uh, Portuguese, Portuguese yeah. which is the group of oilseeds crushers, um, has not commented on it. In the past, they've said it's the important tool. So we'll see. Okay. Well, in some other trade-related news, Mike, we know that the U.S. and Japan have reached kind of a phase one again, although that's not what it's called. That's just my my synopsis of it, but basically an ag-focused trade deal. And it sounds like Japan's parliament is going to vote on that, begin voting on that trade pact next week. According to some Japanese reports, their lower house is expected to take it up on Wednesday, and the other half of their house is expected to begin talking, discussing, voting, etc. on Thursday of next week. And so it seems like we are right on track to have both houses of the Japanese parliament sign it, etc., and implement it for a January 1st start date. That is good news. Get that deal done and inked, and uh, we've got a little more consistency on the trade front. Absolutely. And as a frame of reference, this deal, we've got some more concrete numbers. We'll eliminate or cut about $7.2 billion worth of U.S. ag commodities tariffs on those U.S. ag commodities. Exactly. It puts us back on par with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 
which getting Japanese tariffs reduced was a huge reason why we were talking about joining that partnership in the first place. So President Trump got what he wanted. He got a unilateral deal or a bilateral yes, deal, I suppose. that's true. That accomplished what the TPP was supposed to accomplish and credit where credit is due, got it done very quickly. That is that absolutely. This uh, compared to all the other trade deals, this one has been very quick moving. It seems. Yes. Speaking of another trade deal, USMCA Nancy Pelosi just came out. We're recording this about one twenty-three in the afternoon Central Time. She came out here at about twelve thirty and said that negotiations on USMCA are just about completed. She called the passage of it imminent, and she said that it will be voted on by the House prior to the end of 2019. So we're also going to get, it sounds like, some consistency or some permanence there with the, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, the trade agreement. USMCA. U.S.-Mexico-Canada <laughs> agreement, right? Yes, that is correct, Mike. Yeah, yeah. So uh, good news on both those fronts. End of 2019, could see Japan and the USMCA both signed off. That would be great news indeed. Well, I am all out of news, Delaney Howell. Do you have any other stories you need to bring to our attention? This isn't really necessarily news, but I just thought it was an interesting analysis put together by Farm Bureau Federation. Again, they're always doing some interesting stuff. And this one was showing disparities in what people pay for food based on income in various parts of the world. And Americans... It used to be, I thought, as a rule of thumb, we spent like 10% or less of disposable income on food. And now it's the latest analysis shows we're at about 4.7% spent 4. on food. 4.7% of yes. Americans' disposable income is spent on food? Yes, isn't that crazy? That is shocking. But it comes back to a point that we've made before with our interviews here on this podcast that has opened up new new markets for some producers who want to create specialty crops. Because Americans spend so little of their take-home pay on food, they can afford to spend more on crops that, uh, or on products that validate their, their moral feelings, whether it's organic mm -hmm. or you know, locally produced or whatever. Those things have a market because we are so efficient at producing food. So it's good news all the way around. It is. And the study also goes on to compare what other countries pay for food, and most high-income countries comparable to the U.S. are around 75 to 8%, but those poorer countries, underdeveloped countries, developing countries like in Africa and whatnot, are spending 50% of their income on food. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those things that as development continues, people all of a sudden, once they're forced to, or once they're able to earn more, then they can grow their economies a little bit more quickly. For a long time, I remember Saudi Arabia being one of the most expensive countries for food, but maybe that was just on a per capita basis. Maybe it's not on a percentage of disposable income basis. Oh, okay. Interesting. But you don't see Saudi Arabia on the list. No. Okay. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Coming to you live from Kansas City. Well, maybe not live exactly, but coming to you from Kansas City today at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters Convention. My name is Delaney Howell, joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. So bring us up to speed. You are down at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters annual meeting. First year in several. I have not been able to make it down there. Phyllison, what have you learned so far? Who have you been able to interact with? What is the groundbreaking news coming from the world of farm broadcasters? 
I'm not sure there's any breaking news that's happening down here, but there's definitely... I mean, I, I just love this time because this may be the only time of year I get to see some of the other fellow farm broadcasters from all across the U.S., and there are just a lot of great people to talk to, a lot of great folks to interact with, and that's my favorite part is the networking side of things. Ah, good, networking, building your escape plan. Yes, building my escape plan. Wonderful, wonderful for you. Well, that's mm -hmm. exciting. And um, But we do have news going on in the world of agriculture. The world continues to spin, Delaney. Yes, even though I'm here, the world continues to spin, Mike. Indeed. We had a report out from JBS. I thought this was interesting. They, were, uh, they issued the reports down there in Sao Paulo, which is, of course, their headquarters, being as they are uh, JBS South America. Um, they came out and they said that the rise of beef consumption in China has been, quote, impressive. They say the, the company said that beef consumption in China is going to remain strong after an outbreak of African swine fever. And we've talked about this repeatedly on the podcast. The price of pork has climbed so much that Chinese consumers are now looking at other proteins. Notably, JBS mentions beef. But Delaney, perhaps you've seen the other major headline to come out of China today. Well, absolutely. It seems that China is officially lifting its ban on U.S. poultry. It's been in effect here for about four years, but uh, this will open the way for a ton of U.S. poultry to make its way to the Chinese consumer. Yes. So Secretary Purdue and Robert Lighthizer made this announcement earlier today. They said that they expect to see a billion dollars of poultry exports. And um, Lighthizer said, quote, China is an important export market for America's poultry farmers, and we estimate they will now be able to export more than $1 billion worth of poultry and poultry products each year to China. The exciting thing is that they're not just looking at poultry. They're also looking at eggs. Um, they, according to Jim Sumner, who is the president of USA Poultry and Egg Export Council, um, he said that the Chinese will likely buy all types of U.S. chicken, turkey, and duck to try and offset their shortage of pork. So both beef and chicken are seeing some moves to the upside here in, uh, in Chinese consumption. Yes. I thought you were going to say they're an upside in the markets, and I was going to say, Mike, I don't think that chickens are a traded commodity. They are not. And in fact, we were talking here at the office, this move to open poultry export sales to China is probably going to be slightly bearish to the pork market, to the lean hog market, because, um, you know, in theory, if they're buying more poultry, their demand for U.S. pork could drop somewhat. Who knows the amount? They, they do mm -hmm. prefer pork over poultry, but we shall see. We shall see. Well, since we were talking about, you're talking about a report there, we've got another report that came out done by the Tariffs Hurt the Heartland, which is, of course, a nationwide campaign addressing and looking at the tariffs that have been in effect here with the U.S.-China trade war in particular. And they released some new data showing retaliatory tariffs and what those cost to farmers, businesses, and consumers in particularly two Midwestern states, which are Kansas and Missouri. And they said in those two states alone, they have seen a combined import tax total of $677 million, and businesses have paid an extra $454 million in import taxes on products that have been subject to tariffs 
while exports have faced an additional $260 million in new retaliatory tariffs.、Mm. These are just huge numbers. I thought that was crazy. And that's just in two states alone. Right, right. You multiply that across the Corn Belt, across the Southeast, across California, where a lot of those high value crops are produced that China has taken aim at. And those numbers get catastrophically huge very, very、yes. quickly. Yes, they yes. do. Yes, I think listeners on the podcast are aware of my disdain for this tariff policy. So I, I won't go they, into details. Good, good idea. Good choice. Thank you for moving、yeah. along. Right. It's terrible. Not, not the way to fight and win a trade war. Right. We'll just leave it at that. Taxing Americans more. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow. But we do have news out of Brazil. So. Since 2008, there has been a commitment, sort of a pact, between the country's grain traders that they will not buy soybeans produced from land cleared in the Amazon rainforest. This is known as the soy moratorium, and it has been,、um, I guess, pretty well adhered to. And it's how the, the group,、um, the, the grain traders, say that this is how they can, he called it the. the Only tool at traders' disposal to monitor the use of deforested areas in the Amazon. This is interesting because Brazil's agriculture minister, Teresa Cristina Diaz, has come out and she has criticized this pact and she says it's absurd. And we have other ways to show whether or not soy is being produced in the Amazon. So there's a push to get rid of this soy moratorium, though we'll have to see if it actually gains any traction. ABOV. Abiove, I'm not sure how you speak hmm,、uh, Portuguese, Portuguese、yeah. which is the group of oilseeds crushers,、um, has not commented on it. In the past, they've said it's the important tool. So we'll see. Okay. Well, in some other trade related news, Mike, we know that the US and Japan have reached kind of a phase one again, although that's not what it's called. That's just my. My synopsis of it, but basically an ag focused trade deal. And it sounds like Japan's parliament is going to vote on that, begin voting on that trade pact next week. According to some Japanese reports, their lower house is expected to take it up on Wednesday, and the other half of their house is expected to begin talking, discussing, voting, etc. on Thursday of next week. And so it、wow. sounds like we are right on track to have. Both houses of the Japanese parliament sign it, etc., and implement it for a January 1st start date. That is good news. Get that deal done and inked, and、uh, we've got a little more consistency on the trade front. Absolutely. And as a frame of reference, this deal, we've got some more concrete numbers. We'll eliminate or cut about $7.2 billion worth of U.S. ag commodities. Tariffs on those U.S. ag commodities. Exactly. It puts us、so. back on par with the Trans Pacific Partnership, which getting Japanese tariffs reduced was a huge reason why we were talking about joining that partnership in the first place. So President Trump got what he wanted. He got a unilateral deal, or a bilateral yes, deal, I suppose. Yes, that's true. That accomplished what the TPP was supposed to accomplish, and credit where credit is due, got it done very quickly. That is, that absolutely. This,、uh, compared to all the other trade deals, this one has been very. Quick moving, it seems. Yes. Speaking of another trade deal, USMCA, Nancy Pelosi just came out. We're recording this about 1 23 in the afternoon, Central Time. She came out here at about 12 30 and said that negotiations on USMCA are just about completed. She called the passage of it imminent, and she said that it will be voted on by the House 
prior to the end of 2019. So we're also going to get, it sounds like, some consistency or some permanence there with uh, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, uh, trade agreement. U.S.-MCA. U.S.-Mexico-Canada <laughs> agreement, right? Yes, that is correct, Mike. Yeah, yeah. So uh, good news on both those fronts. End of 2019, could see Japan and the USMCA both signed off. That would be great news indeed. Well, I am all out of news, Delaney Howell. Do you have any other stories you need to bring to our attention? This isn't really necessarily news, but I just thought it was an interesting analysis put together by Farm Bureau Federation. Again, they're always doing some interesting stuff. And this one was showing disparities in what people pay for food based on income in various parts of the world. And Americans, it used to be, I thought, as a rule of thumb, we spent like 10% or less of disposable income on food. And now it's the latest analysis shows we're at about 4.7% spent 4. on food. 4.7% of yes. Americans' disposable income is spent on food? Yes, isn't that crazy? That is shocking, but it comes back to a point that we've made before with our interviews here on this podcast that has opened up new markets for some producers who want to create specialty crops. Because Americans spend so little of their take-home pay on food, they can afford to spend more on crops that, uh, or on products that validate their, their moral feelings, whether it's organic mm-hmm. or you know, locally produced or whatever. Those things have a market because we are so efficient at producing food. So it's good news all the way around. It is, and the study also goes on to compare what other countries pay for food, and most high-income countries, comparable to the U.S., are around 75 to 8%, but those poorer countries, underdeveloped countries, developing countries, like in Africa and whatnot, are spending 50% of their income on food. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of those things that as development continues... People all of a sudden, once they're forced to, or once they're able to earn more, then they can grow their economies a little bit more quickly. For a long time, I remember Saudi Arabia being one of the most expensive countries for food, but maybe that was just on a per capita basis. Maybe it's not on a percentage of disposable income basis. Oh, okay. Interesting. But you don't see Saudi Arabia on the list? No. Okay. Gotcha. Well, with that out of the way, let's jump in and see where the market's closed. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, folks. We've got mixed trade here in the markets. Corn higher, beans mixed, wheat a little lower on the day. Kind of back and forth trade, slow news day. And let's kick it off. December corn dropped a quarter, excuse me, climbed a quarter penny to finish at 375 and a half. The March contract was up a half to finish at 384 and a half. In soybeans, the Nova contract was down two and a quarter, finished today at $9 and a quarter. January, up one and a half cents, finished at 916 and three quarters. Looking at Chicago wheat, the December contract dropped a penny to close at 508 even. March down two and three quarters, finished today at five eleven. December, oh excuse me, what am I doing? What am I doing? I got to go to livestock. Easy, Pete. Here we go. Cattle caught a bid today after yesterday's sell-off, and lean hogs were a little bit lower on the day. In the cattle complex, December live cattle up ninety-seven and a half cents at one nineteen oh seven fifty. The February contract up eighty-two and a half to finish at one twenty-four ninety-two fifty. In feeder cattle, the November contract up a dollar oh five to close at one forty-six sixty-two fifty. January contract up a dollar twenty-two fifty. Finish the day at one forty-four oh five. 
and in lean hogs. The December contract down 37 half at 62.75. The Feb contract down a dollar 17.50. Finished the day at 73.37 and a half. And a quick look over at the dairy market. After yesterday's rally, we did see a bit of a pullback here in the front month's contracts. November dropped two cents to close at two. $20.17 a hundredweight. The January down six cents. Finished the day at eighteen seventy-three. Without further ado, Delaney, would you like to introduce us to our interview for the day? I would, Mike, right after we listen to today's Hot Rod Farmer Minute. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. The ability to control a mechanical device electrically has done more to advance both gasoline and diesel engine operation than anything else. One method to accomplish this is called the pulse width modulated circuit. It is found in many places on modern farm engines and equipment. An electronic fuel injector is the most common use of a PWM circuit, but it is not the only one. Since a PWM circuit does not know what it is controlling, the way it works and the diagnostics are the same. The component being controlled needs to have a solenoid. When power is applied, the solenoid is energized and the induced magnetic field works against the metal component, usually inducing flow of what is being controlled. When the power is shut off, an internal spring then closes the device and flow stops. The part is turned on and off at a rapid pace. The control comes by altering the on and off time. This is responsible for the ticking sound when operating. The length of time the solenoid is energized is called a duty cycle and is read in percent from zero off to 100% fully open. This is known as dwell. In most applications, a duty cycle translates by design to an opening time in milliseconds, one one-thousandth of a second. For example, if 100% duty cycle is 10 milliseconds, then 50% duty cycle would be 5 milliseconds. The control unit is usually identified as an ECU. It is the brain and handles the task of the duty cycle. In most, if not all, applications, the solenoid is supplied with system voltage and the ground circuit is turned on and off by the ECU. The circuit will always have two wires, power and ground. The solenoid has a specified resistance that can be confirmed by unplugging it and placing an ohmmeter across the two terminals. To confirm if the ECU is commanding control, either a test or noid light can be employed. Well, for today's interview, many of you have probably been following along on social media this week, and that is the Agritechnica conference going on in Germany, or has been going on over the past week in Germany. And we are going to catch up today with ag journalist Natalina Sense about her time at that conference. Well, as promised, we've got Natalina Sense back on the podcast today to talk about her awesome recent trip at Agritechnica in Germany. And Natalina is, of course, the digital content manager with Meredith Successful Farming. Natalina, tell us about the trip. I am so excited to talk to you. I haven't really gotten to talk to you since you've gotten back. It sounds like there was a lot of walking involved and it was just a humongous conference. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad to be back 
but had a wonderful experience in Germany. Um, as you said, Agritechnica was huge. Um, blew my mind was way beyond my expectations. You know, I regularly attend Commodity Classic, National Farm Machinery Show, a lot of the big trade shows here um, around the Midwest for successful farming. And this was way bigger than any of those. Um, I believe there were like 20 large buildings full of machinery. And we walked about 15 miles a day covering it Oh, all. my gosh. How many? About 15. Wow. <laughs> there were no leisurely walks around town in that. That was purely just covering the show. Uh, I opted not to weigh my backpack because I just don't think I want to know how much I was carrying around. But, you know, a couple laptops, uh, oh my a gosh. big camera. Um, multiple phones, an iPad, and then, of course, all the literature you pick up at those booths. So um, I'd say I got my workout in. I bet so. So now, before we get too far into the displays that were there, and I know a lot of new technology is unveiled at Agritechnica, for our listeners who have also been to a lot of those shows here in the U.S., whether it's Farm Progress or the Iowa Power Farming Show, what were some of the big differences, what were the main differences you noticed between Agritechnica and shows like those? Would an American feel comfortable just dropping in? Would it be booths with sales agents just like you'd find here? Yes, yes. I mean, um, it's a lot of the same companies that you're used to seeing here um, at Midwestern shows. You know, I visited with John Deere and Case IH, but there are also um, European companies, Russian companies, there that um, may or may not have their products available in the U.S. And uh, for me, it was a really cool opportunity to see the huge equipment that they use in the sugar beet industry and other parts of agriculture that I don't get to interact with quite as much on a day-to-day basis. So obviously you were covering this trade show for Meredith, but what was your main mission or your main goal of going over there and going to this trade show? I mean, a lot of the stuff may or may not apply to producers back here in the U.S. So tell us what you learned. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with my job at Successful Farming, I'm in charge of covering um, new machinery. And then my colleague who also traveled with me um, to Germany, her name's Lori Bedort. She covers new technology. So we um, kind of split up some of the new products for farmers that were unveiled at this show. Um, I know she just put together an awesome article about Beer's um, Future of Farming exhibit. So they had drones and um, battery-powered tractors and um, all kinds of things that were just really mind-blowing, gathering a lot of farmers' attention. Um, by the afternoons, it was just hard to even move or walk in there uh, to take pictures <laughs> to do our job. So um, farmers were really excited with what they were seeing, um, and I wrote about some new products from Case, some new products from Great Plains that they were previewing. Um, because Agritechnica is the largest ag trade show in the world, um, many of these large companies use this as an opportunity to um, introduce new products or preview new products or kind of tease uh, what they've been working on. So, um, you know, we saw... John Deere's new X9 combine, new combines from New Holland. Um, some. Let's talk a little bit about those combines that were that were unveiled. How are they different from uh, from the most recent combines that we've got out there today? What kind of big changes did you notice either in the cab or in the uh, components? Yeah. So, so the thing about this 
uh, event is a lot of these things are reveals or kind of teasers. So, you know, on the new John Deere X9 Combine, the, the sides were down. Um, they're not re- releasing spec information or that sort of thing. So I don't have, um, you know, a lot of stats and figures to give you. But um, the new Draper head that was released with that, you could, you know, see the the massive range of movement in the wings of that head, um, you know, was moving from like my shin height to my shoulder height. So, you know, I don't know if that's um, four feet or what, but, um, you know, I'd say it was, it was larger than, than three feet. Um, you know, they won't specify um, the the dimensions of that sort of thing until they get a chance to introduce these products to their dealers and, and get everybody familiar with um, the products that are going to be coming available for farmers soon. And that's pretty, pretty common um, across the industry. Lots of, lots of companies don't have those specs quite available for the public yet. Um, But that header, you know, had a huge range of movement. And then the belts also had a texture um, that really was designed with, canola farmers or rapeseed farmers, as they call them, um, in Europe to um, keep those little seeds on the belt. So they end up in the grain tank mm. and end up in a farmer's bin. And, um, you know, a farmer can get paid for their their crops. Absolutely. That's really interesting. So obviously you cover more of the machinery beat at Meredith, but I'm sure it was not all just machinery that was at this conference. Was it everything from equipment to technology to, I mean, I don't even know what were all the different booths or, or displays that people were presenting, or was it geared more towards one particular aspect of the industry? Yeah, I mean, there was just a lot of iron in that building. Um, everything from tillage equipment to new tractors to um, telehandlers are especially big in Europe. You know, I don't see them quite as often on farms uh, here in the U.S. or maybe they're more on um, dairy farms or maybe your co-op has one. Um, But telehandlers were something really big that I saw there. Um, You know, in the EU, they're um, preparing to, farmers are preparing to not have um, glyphosate as a tool in their toolbox anymore. So um, different types of tillage or um, other implements that can help farmers manage their weeds um, keep their fields clean um, without some of the the chemical options that we have in our uh, in our toolbox right now. Um, but then, like I said, there were sugar beet harvesters, and um, I saw like a robot lettuce weeder. I'm sure that's mm. not the proper name for it, but cultivator. Um, all kinds of things that yeah, it was like it's it, automated cultivation. I've seen a video of that thing, and listeners, Google it up. Or Natalina, you probably have a video of it posted somewhere, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I think I tweeted it. Um, it was just mind blowing. I I could have just sat there and watched it. Um, yeah, it's, the weeds and, and stuff for hours. It's incredible stuff. And one of the big things that we're seeing is this kind of a bifurcation in the industry. Some companies, or I guess a lot of companies, are going towards their concepts having zero cab at all. They're all electronically controlled. I, I know we had John Deere unveil a couple different you know, prototypes and Case IH was there with one from my understanding. But we're also seeing lots more additions to the cab for farmers. Natalina, I'm assuming you got to climb into a lot of different cabs of futuristic equipment. Tell us, what was the coolest thing you saw in any addition to a tractor or combine cab? 
Oh, man. Um, I didn't get in as many cabs as I would have liked just because the lines were so long um, <laughs> to, to get in any of them. And uh, I knew if I would sit down, I probably wouldn't want to get up again, and I had miles to walk. <laughs> but um, the new um, John Deere tractors um, that they released a little bit before Agrotechnica, but they were there at Agrotechnica to be seen and touched and investigated by farmers. Um, they have the ultimate cab on those and just generally trending um, cabs are getting larger to accommodate farmers spending more hours in the, in the machine, uh, whether that's a combine or a tractor, um, more monitors. Um, I see a lot of, um, a lot of company companies putting an emphasis on visibility, you know, so that you can maneuver in smaller spaces. That's especially big in Europe as they have smaller farms or, um, smaller barns or, um, you know, buildings that say a telehandler or that sort of thing may be operating in. Um, so visibility was a big thing. And then just connectivity. Um, you know, it's important to have machines that talk to one another and um, give farmers data that they can make decisions on. Huh. Well, that is really interesting. Now, Lena, I, the last question I have is, obviously, you're a journalist. You've got a lot, of, a lot to maybe uh, just settle in after your time there in Germany, but will you be releasing some articles here over the next week or so, or how can folks really dig deep into your synopsis of what you saw there at Agritechnica? Yes, absolutely. So um, a lot of those new product stories are already available on agriculture.com. So um, I have a couple products um, that I highlighted, including the John Deere X9 Combine, um, the feeder cups that were previewed as part of a new seed drill that um, Great Plains will be unveiling in 2020, um, some more of their technology for tillage equipment. That's all available online. And uh, keep keep an eye on agriculture.com for the coming weeks for more of those new products. And then also Lori and I will begin to analyze, um, begin our analysis of the trends that we were seeing. And um, I know she spoke with a German farmer and uh, we'll be sharing some of their perspective as well. Fantastic. Listeners, be sure to check all that out. Agritechnica is such a cool show. The pictures are always fantastic. And Natalina, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and uh, chat with us about it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Donka Shane to Natalina for that report. Agritechnica sounds like one of those fascinating product shows. One of these days, Delaney, Ag News Daily has got to yes. take us overseas. Absolutely. I was talking to uh, Chad Colby. He was also at the event. I ran into him today at NAFB, and I said, man, you've had a busy past couple of days. He said, yep, flew into Kansas City, and here I am at the conference. So a long, long conference. So, yeah. Always, always running into Mr. Chad Colby. It's always a pleasure also to catch up to some of your favorite podcast episodes, I suppose, which you can do on our website at agnewsdaily.com. Check that out. That'll take you to the Global Ag Network, where you can catch up on our podcasts, as well as those by other notable agricultural podcasters. Or, of course, we are literally always available on social media. Find us at agnewsdaily. Yeah, gosh, today I need more coffee. Find us at agnewsdaily on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.